Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, on 11 October 1537, Henry VIII finally received the son for whom he had been waiting for decades. The day before the future Edward VI was born, processions of friars, priests, livery companies, and the mayor and aldermen of London processed through the city streets, praying for the Queen's safe delivery. With his birth, te deums were sung in London's churches, bells were rung, fires were lit in every street, and volleys of gunfire came from the Tower of London. It was a classic Tudor event, combining as it did fears of a failed royal secession, civic drama, at times contradictory religious impulses and emotions, thrusting military power, and seemingly endless classical images and illusions. But Tudor England is not composed simply of the reigns of the Tudor monarchs. My guest Lucy Whitting writes that it was composed instead by decades of war and poverty, disease and destruction, a subtle but strong transformation in the nature of government, and complex shifts within economy and society, an outpouring of words, and an ideological revolution in the religious belief. Lucy Wooding is Langford Fellow and Tudor at Lincoln College in the University of Oxford, and author of Tudor England History, which is the subject of our conversation today. Lucy Wooding, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. So first, the question that historians hate and we love, that of periods. You write, Tudor England did not exist. There was no such thing as Tudor England until long after the last Tudor was dead. And yet, I read this wonderful book and I think, gosh, there was actually, society was somehow different during this dynastic period than it was before or after. So, to what, what's the usefulness of the of the term Tudor England now that we're stuck with it? Well, you know, I guess as historians, we have to make distinctions somehow. We have to draw some boundary lines just to make it manageable. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that uh, there was a growing sense over this slightly more than a century um, of a sort of, you know, an identity... Uh, both for the country and for the dynasty, um, you know, perhaps they they grew into being Tudor England a little bit more by the end of the period, but of course at the start of the period it was such, you know, a time of upheaval and uncertainty, and Henry the Seventh had the most questionable claim to the throne really, that anything they can do to root themselves in older ideas of um, authority older notions of, of, of you know sanction um they really had to hang on to that as much as they could um so the importance of uniting the lancastrian and yorkist claim uh the importance of their plantagenet forebears is all the time reiterated by what we think of as, as the tudor dynasty um and i think thinking more broadly about society at large one of the things I found so fascinating working on this book is the really intense sense of history that people had in the 16th century. Um, that's partly because they are arguing over the true faith. They're arguing about you know how to conceive of, of 
true Christianity, whether it takes a Protestant or a Catholic form eventually, either of them is rooted in long, long years of church history and an appeal back to the past. Um, but I think they're also, uh, I mean, it's an age of extraordinary intellectual excitement. It's an age in which history writing itself arguably comes of age. Um, and so, you know, this was a society which was absolutely fascinated by the past and preoccupied with um, any parallels that it could draw, either back to the classical past, you know, the, the, the myths of Greece and Rome, uh, enormously important in popular culture, as well as in sort of more elite culture. Um, but, you know, they look back to medieval legend, um, you know, wherever they can find a point of reference, they really make the most of it. So to just sort of chop it into one little section and say, well, this was Tudor England, I think doesn't do justice to the way people conceived of themselves and their, their traditions, their histories, their heritage at the time. This occupation, uh, preoccupation with the past, this um, latching on to previous examples, which occurs in, as you say, the creation of certainly of history in English um, it is interesting that this is, and perhaps indicative that this is happening at a time of enormous change and rupture with the past. Yes, well, I suppose faced with that level of challenge, you hold on all the more tightly to what you see as, you know, uh, representing some kind of security. So when people said to the Protestant reformers, you know, what is this awkward, jagged, antagonistic new conception of the faith that you are peddling? You know, they said their, their, their response was to say, no, this is the church of Christ and his apostles. This is the church that has been alive in every age um, since. You know, their, their defense was a defense rooted in historical thinking. And, it, and it's not... Sorry analogous to the defense of the Tudors to their dynastic claim. Oh. You know, we we are we are part of the unbroken English dynasty going back to, I don't know, Votan. Uh, they may, may, may wouldn't have said that, but still. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, Henry VIII um, possesses a genealogy which traces his ancestry all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. So, you know, they, they, these things mattered. Genealogies mattered. You know, where you came from could could impart quite a, a, a large amount of uh, sort of stability and sanction. So you be, you begin the book with a chapter on landscape, which I which I love, um, and you write for Tudor men and women, the landscape around them was full of meaning. Um, why did you begin with that chapter on landscape, and what were some of those meanings that the Tudor men and women derived from their landscape? Well, I, when I thought about how I wanted to frame this book. I wanted to very much get away from what I suppose is the kind of accepted narrative or the predictable narrative, which is all high politics um, and uh, sort of, you know, ideological conflict. Um, I actually wanted to talk about society as a whole. Now, obviously, that's difficult to get at because not all 16th century life patterns leave records in the archive um, but I did think that by trying to root everything that I was saying in some kind of conception of the landscape as a whole that this might be the best way to write a kind of 
holistic history, if at all possible. Um, I think it's also important to remember that this was a time when nearly everybody lived on the land, when power and wealth came from landowning, but where ordinary men and women were usually involved in agricultural labour of of some sort or another. Um, And it's, you know, you can see it in the way that people talk about um, their ideals. I mean, if you if you read sermons from the time, the number of agricultural metaphors that creep in, if you look at um, political treatises and the way that they conceive of kind of good social order, it's all about how people are rooted in the land and their responsibilities to their community, um, this kind of thing. Um, I think, too, people invested the landscape at this point with a kind of religious significance, too. So a lot of the prayers that you have in the 16th century are prayers for good weather, they're prayers for good harvest, because people's livelihoods depended on these things. And I think people define themselves, obviously in relationship to their family, um, but in terms of their relationship to their community, that community was one that was rooted usually in a parish. Uh, One of the, the rituals that survived the Reformation um, are the um, what, what we call the rogation tide processions. So the idea that once a year you actually go out on procession as a community and you mark the boundaries of your patch of land, and at the same time, you know, you give thanks for for, for the blessings of of a good harvest. You you know, you pray for future harvests. You pray for the sort of flourishing of your little community. You know, all of that is actually rooted in the soil. Um, and I think... It's a it's a very powerful ritual, which is both... English bring both to Puritan New England and also to Virginia. Mm-hmm. Both of them both of them practice the walking the bounds on Rogation Sunday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we still do it here. We still do it here in, in Lincoln College um, every Ascension Day. They're, they beat the bounds. Um, yeah. But, but let's talk about, I, I wanted to, I, I had the idea that we could avoid talking about the best known Tudor monarchs. Uh, that we'll never talk about Henry VIII and Elizabeth II uh, first, because obviously I'm, I'm interested in, in not having anyone listen to the podcast. So, um, because that is what sells a, a podcast is, you know, as we know, Tudors and Nazis, um, and by which we mean Henry VIII, Elizabeth II, Adolf Hitler. Uh, but I, I, we do need to talk about Henry VII, who has to be the most deeply he has claimed to be the most interesting overlooked English monarch, um, uh, uh, a person, as you write, uh, a man who uh, really came from nothing, but then proved himself to be a daring and shrewd military leader, an astute, effective politician, an accomplished diplomat, a wise and efficient administrator, and who manages um, to not only create a dynasty, but the success of a king certainly is to have an heir and to have multiple heirs, which he achieves, and and upon the most shallow, uh, seemingly shallow and weak foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was an amazing figure. Um, unfortunately, he was the victim of his own success because he managed to get the country into tolerable order, um, which included getting those who were the most rich and powerful members of society to toe the line, you know, pay their dues and accept his authority. 
And the problem is that as soon as he's gone and his rather impetuous 17-year-old son is on the throne, it's not just that the young king rather wants to sort of distance himself from his father, establish his own kind of image, his his own sense of uh, personal monarchy, but the elite surrounding him also would like it very much if he wasn't quite as efficient as his father. So they push him in the direction of being, you know, much more magnanimous, much more generous, much less exacting. And in the process, Henry VII's reputation is systematically shredded. Uh, And that's what lives on. So that reputation stays with us to the present day. But if you actually put that to one side and look at what Henry VII achieved, it is remarkable. Yeah, he had a very questionable claim to the throne. He had how questionable? We've said that a couple times, but for people for people unaware of it, what claim did Henry Tudor have on the throne? Well, he is a member of the Lancastrian family, um, but he's not got a direct line of of, um, succession. I mean, his 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 closest link really to the royal line comes through his mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, and the Beauforts um, are unquestionably well connected but they come from the marriage of John of Gaunt one of Edward III's sons to it's a very sweet story to his long-term mistress so John of Gaunt has two very high profile kind of you know uh, marriages uh, that you would expect of uh, noble royal women and then later on in life he marries Catherine Swinford and the, their four children are legitimized but since they are legitimized long after they were born you know they are they are not officially part of the succession so henry the seventh yeah he's he's well connected um but he's by no means an obvious candidate for the throne however richard the third by murdering his nephews which um i think many people at the time did accept that he had done. I know there's a question mark over that, but um, let's let's not get into that one. Um, Please not. (laughs) Richard III had alienated a large amount of the Yorkist faction. And by agreeing to marry Elizabeth of York, Henry VII, the future Henry VII, makes himself look like the best possible candidate for trying to bring together a very fractured political nation. So... Yeah, he's very astute. Um, I think and, and he lands basically with some some French mercenaries and a rugby team in the <laughs> south of Wales, and manages to manages to somehow overwhelm Richard III, who is uh, a very accomplished soldier. He does, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was you know it, it hung in the balance for a while there. there it was by no means a, a given that he was going to win the Battle of Bosworth, but he did, and um, and then capitalized on his success very very intelligently i think also he must have been a pretty nice guy if you look at the number of people who were really really faithful to him were loyal for you know throughout the the reign okay there are one or two notable exceptions to that but yeah i think he was he he had the ability to put together a very closely knit band of supporters and family who managed to make his reign of success. And and this is perhaps less, this is less charismatic, but mm-hmm. he seems to have been, an, I mean, I use this carefully, an administrative genius. 
he knows how to put together an administration to run a kingdom which mm. has been you know for the previous 50 years um, he, he's able to he's able to harness the bureaucracy to create a, 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 a centralized more centralized regime that had been than had existed for the pre, most of the previous centuries that, would that be right um I think you're right. I think it's a little bit of an overstatement. I think you're right that he's administratively very shrewd. Um, but, you know, previous regimes had also had administrative competence. And I think we need to be a little bit careful about talking about, you know, bureaucracy and so on in the 15th century. I mean, really, it comes down to relationships again. He was good at patronage. He was good at making people want to be loyal, want to work for him. You know, he was good at balancing things out. And he was also good at being quite ruthless where people let him down. Um, you know, he could get the balance right between where you really impose a heavy fine on someone and where you let them work their way back to good favour. Um, yeah, no, he, he, he was, I think he was very shrewd at managing people, actually. Yes, it's a good point because Richard III is very good at patronage in certain, like in the north of England, but I guess it's yeah. Henry the Seventh's uh, characteristic that he's able to do it throughout the entire realm and successfully yeah. over a period of time. Well, obviously, you know, he has more success in some areas than others. Mm. Some bits of England are tougher to to win over, um, but he's pretty good at weighing up who will be the best appointment where. Um, and he he starts with a very sort of close-knit band of loyal followers from the centre, and then he, he builds out from there. So let's talk about religion. Uh, you write, Sorry. early Tudor religion was more than just, quote, a ritual method of living. Um, we think of religion, we as moderns, we always want to separate it and pigeonhole it and make it something discreet but you of course are describing a very different religious mentality than that yes i mean it's it's sometimes said that you know religion in the modern sense you know we think of a set of intellectual propositions we we think of a, a set of ideas um and we put the emphasis on homogeneity on you know people being absolutely true to a particular uh, understanding of sort of abstract yeah it, it is very abstract i mean religio in the in the sort of pre-reformation sense religion there is a way of life um and i think it's really i i mean a great deal of very important work has been done in this field so we do now have a sense of how religion is a manifestation of uh social ties family loyalties um you know how it it marks time it uh, lays out delineates the ritual year um how it becomes about the stuff of living um not just about what you might happen to have believed um but the problem with going too far down that path is that you can also end up being a little bit condescending about popular religion um, and I think we need to avoid that danger as well, because the, I don't know, the sophistication, I suppose, of popular religion in this period is really quite striking. 
know, people who are quite profound understanding of their Christian obligations. And one of the sort of touching things about looking at religious life in this period is just how seriously people attempted to establish you know, charitable institutions, to found schools, to found hospitals, to put their Christianity into practical effect. Um, and maybe that was not based on a very high level of theological sophistication, but it certainly wasn't the workings of some kind of ignorant peasant culture. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the depth of people's religious commitment, obviously you see it in the, the conflict later on in the 16th century, but you can see it too in the kind of communal life of the pre-Reformation church. And that's one of the reasons in the book why I did try to talk quite a lot about what happens before Protestantism has really become a real possibility. You write, poverty, disease, war, and civil strife all colored the early modern era and the distress that they caused left traces that are still visible today. Relics of past trauma comprise everything from iconoclasm in churches and graffiti in prisons to dead cats stowed in roof spaces as protection against witchcraft. I love this idea of, of the, the landscape and the physical structures that survive as sort of a palimpsest that has been, we've scraped off a lot of the traces, but there's still, there's still marks of, this, mm -hmm. of, the, of the signs of trauma uh, that people that people that indicate by people in people's lives, uh, they leave behind some mm -hmm. trace of that. So could you describe some of those things and 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 what they relate to? Um, well, I mean, the obvious sign of trauma, or the most obvious sign of trauma in the English landscape, is the ruins of over eight hundred <laughs> monastic houses. Yeah, um, many of those ruins still very visible today. Um, you can see some of the fluctuations in economic fortune. Uh, in that, you know, we have whole lost villages which have now sort of sunk almost out, uh, you know, out of out of sight. Um, I think churches are remarkably helpful for this because you can see where things were whitewashed, where things were smashed, um, and yet, you know, you can still find those palimpsests. You can still find little bits of medieval. Um, wall painting peeping out behind, you know, Puritan whitewash. Um, and I suppose in the sort of rise and fall of some of the great houses, you can see the fluctuations of, of landowning, um, wealth, prosperity. Uh, some generations could, you know, well, some some families could rise and fall within three or four generations. You you can see that from the ruins they leave behind. Um, what what's that about the dead cat though? I mean that that's that's a... one of the things that people guard against in this era is the workings of witchcraft and the dangers of you know uh, maleficent magic and dead cats in a roof space seem to be one of the ways in which they help protect their dwellings. Um, not the only way. You can also inscribe Christian symbols um, or sometimes even older symbols um, on doorposts and floors and you know, archways and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, these are, these are quite hard to interpret sometimes. Uh, but 
but it's clear that there were lots of fairly routine responses to possible threats and yeah these these still survive yes this uh, i think I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes robert st george at university of pennsylvania has a whole several series of essays on atropopeic uh, oh, signs is i think that is the term um this relate this segues very nicely into into discussions of death ways um okay. and uh the preoccupation with good deaths bad deaths which is very odd to us um perhaps it shouldn't be um but i think maybe it should be yeah i mean you know we do we do our we do our dying these days at one remove very often from the lives that we li we've lived i mean th this was a time when you know nobody went into a hospital to die or not very often at least um you know people live and die in the same house um i mean they probably die in the same bed in which they were born and the mortality rates are high the chances of losing several of your children are very high um, the chance of losing a spouse is very high. So, you know, we, we, we sometimes naively assume that family patterns in the past, uh, you, know, you had a sort of simpler nuclear family, and not at all. You know, there were huge numbers of step-parents and stepchildren um, because people would marry very often two or three times in a lifetime. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't really avoid the measure of human suffering and you can't really avoid or postpone the threat of death in the way that I think we perhaps like to do or at least crave to do in the modern world. So people were much more practical. I mean, the, the idea that you have handbooks on how to die, I don't think this sits terribly well with modern sensibilities, but um, there were any number of them uh, in the 16th century. And they are really quite moving reading as well i mean they're they're practical they're humane um they're obviously they're religious in tone but they're also kind of you know they, they talk about the practicalities the more pragmatic issues of how you order your family and you know how do you, you order your affairs before you go um and they make it clear that the state of your soul is actually really really important you know, we might be doing a little bit better in the modern world if we talked a little bit more often about the state of our soul. But um, for the Tudors, yeah, you know, you need to think, who have you wronged? You know, to whom should you make recompense? And you need to sort of focus on the basic truths of your faith this, before you go. This is true before and after the Reformation. It is. Well, this is an interesting thing. Yes, it survives the Reformation. Obviously, it takes a, a rather different form um, under Protestantism. And yet, it's one of those kind of uh, expressions of, of, I suppose, cultural imperative that, that alters less than quite a lot of other things. So um, you still get Ars Moriendi, you know, the art of dying. You still get these books explaining how to make a good end uh, after after Protestantism has become the, the sort of dominant religious culture. I, I think I heard one theologian observe that Ars Moriendi lasts throughout every religious crisis and tumult in Christianity until the 20th century. 
You know, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that they're just a continuation, and they all of a sudden they just like snap your fingers, and sometimes they just like completely vanish. But they're common to you know Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestants of every variety, and then boom, gone. Which yeah. is an interesting thing. Hmm. Um, this relates to this is gets relates to a, a recent conversation I had uh, on on counting death. Um, it's Stephen Berry, I think it was, and uh, he. We were talking about, and, and this relates to your earlier remarks on trauma. I mean, you can lose your a husband, maybe several husbands, maybe three, four, uh, three or four mm -hmm. wives. Uh, God knows yeah. multiples of children. Um, but we have the idea that they were somehow very casual about this. Um, I think that's the idea that this was just some, yeah, this is just happens. But I don't think they were. I think this is actually part of that trauma that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there was a dominant sort of school of historical thought at one time that said that people could not have been as attached to their children as we are today, um, just because you know, the, the, the risk of losing them was so great that they had somehow to keep some kind of emotional distance. I think that idea has been pretty comprehensively mm -hmm. demolished now. Um, and you know, one of the more moving things that you can read is, is Tudor accounts of dying children and, and family loss. Uh, and I think that also feeds into the religious culture of the time. I mean, one of the most powerful religious images, um, perhaps more common before the Reformation than after, but the, 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 the figure of um, Mary with her you know, her, her crucified son in her arms, you get that, obviously you get it in great works of art from the 16th century, but you also get it reproduced in much more humble form in sort of statues and wall paintings in little parish churches. Um, and that must have spoken so directly to the experience of parents in the congregation who knew what it was to cradle a, a dead child in their arms so i think that yeah I, I i don't think we can for a minute assume that in the 16th century people felt any less keenly yeah. than we might do today the um the late tudor poet let's call him that john dunn unfortunately mm -hmm. the best known thing that he uh, said is from a bad hemingway novel um, it's the title of For Whom the Bell Tolls, and it's yeah. meditations while he is sick unto death. And he's yeah. considering, he hears the funeral bell tolling, and he contemplates that he's connected by death to everyone around him. This is not a new idea from what you, from what you say, that this idea that of death connecting everyone is part of the connection of the commonwealth. Um, yeah. And commonwealth is a very, very, very important idea. It's the it's the 64 pound idea in some ways, it seems to me, uh, after reading this book of, of Tudor England, and it has a lot of life after this. It does, yes. I think the afterlife of the term um, maybe doesn't do sufficient credit to its meaning during the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, in the, I think later on, we, we think of it perhaps in more political economic terms I mean the notion of commonwealth in the 15th and 16th century um, was primarily I think about virtue about communal obligation about the ties 
of kinship and community and the kind of moral obligation that people had to sustain those. And these, as we've just said, you know, these are difficult times. They're facing all sorts of challenge uh, on a scale that, you know, we would struggle really to get our heads around, uh, you know, at a time when plague returns every few years, when warfare is so um, universal and so brutal, when just the business of daily life is hard enough. And the fact that faced with that, their instinct was to draw together to kind of reinforce one another's strength um, and take very, very seriously their duties uh, to their immediate community. Um, yeah, it's, it's an inspirational notion. And again, one that is not really undermined. It's slightly refashioned by the impact of Reformation, but it remains just as, just as powerful. And it, um, at the end, of and by the late seventeenth century, it's become a sort of code word for republic. But that, but that, that is, but by the way, but that is not what it means in the sixteenth century. No, in the sixteenth century, this is a notion that has real popular resonance, and would not be just the stuff of. Uh, I mean, it does come into um, political ideas. It comes into you know debates about. Um, the ideal state and so on and so forth in the, in the works of churchmen and scholars. But it has such resonance that, you know, you're more likely to find it in the protests of rebels, in the appeals of tenants, in, um, you know, lawsuits. Just the notion that there should be these ties of mutual obligation, you know, this is something that everybody recognises. So uh, I guess we have to talk about Henry VIII briefly. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so we've gone from, uh, the, the, it's probably a, a historiographical essay that's already been written on this, but we've gone from Charles Loft Lofton and turkey legs and bluff King Howe and suits of armor and all the rest of it. And to, I guess, a sort of post-Wolf Hall sort of uh, Henry VIII as a Tudor Stalin. Uh, yes. That uh, decades ago, uh, Oxford Don observed to me that he thought that the Tudor England was probably as oppressive a place as Stalinist Russia uh, or, yes. or Castro's Cuba. People informing against you, people always watching yes. you, people, you know, plotting against you. I thought that was kind of crazy. Um, and I'm happy to see that you do too. So why is Henry VIII not a, a sort of Tudor Stalin? Um, just the notion of anyone in the 16th century exercising any kind of totalitarian rule is ridiculous. Why? Right? And it really, well, it fails to kind of comprehend how power is brokered at this point. Um, you know, I mean, Stal I, I'm not going to claim to know a huge amount about uh, Stalinist Russia, but you know, in the modern state, you have any number of means of coercion. You have a standing army, you have a secret police, you know, you have a regular police force, you have a huge bureaucracy, you have any number of means of control. Trying to rule a 16th century country, or at least trying to rule 16th century England, you don't have those means of control. 
You just don't have those kind of resources. So you can only rule if the people you are ruling agree to be ruled by you. Now, there is a, a, a disproportion there in that you do have some means of, of coercion and you have might and you have majesty. You control the armory, the mint. You know, you have forces at your disposal. So y- you can coerce to an extent. You can dominate to an extent. But ultimately, your power rests on your credibility. And if you do not look like the model of a true king or queen, then your credibility is eroded and your authority is eroded with it. And the notion of what it was to be a good ruler in the 16th century is pretty well developed and pretty universally accepted. So yes, you know, you had to have a certain measure of majesty, but you also had to administer justice, you had to be pious, and you had to appear to be genuine in your religion. Um, you had to be able to give patronage even handedly. You weren't allowed to have favourites. You weren't to, li- to listen to flatterers. I mean, there's an enormous amount of literature on the education of a good Christian prince and on the obligations of that prince. So, yeah, the, the, the notion that you can you know, run a police state in the 16th century really is ridiculous. Uh, there is a period towards the end of Henry VIII's reign where the political atmosphere is very febrile, where religious conflict and division are for the first time really beginning to bite. And you do see people quite seriously unnerved by that. Um, <clears throat> and I don't think that the court of Henry VIII in, the say, the last decade of his reign was a relaxing place to be (laughs) but that doesn't mean that there was some kind of you know stuff land and if i'm Um, out in wiltshire if i'm a you know even if i'm a small landowner uh even even a medium-sized landowner and say the the western you know reaches of wiltshire what what difference does the court make to me uh it's so far away um yeah I mean, there will be connections there. Yeah, you know, so you you will have connections to the to the center, but yes, you will also have a high degree of autonomy. Yeah. Um, you uh, write that the 9th of June, fifteen forty nine, is um, well, it's a date that we should probably think more about as an epical date in uh-huh. in English history, arguably even European history and American history. Um, because a lot of things fall out from June 9th, 1549. And it's really amazing to contrast it, and we'll explain why it's important, with October 11th, 1537, when Edward VI is, is about to be born and friars are processing the streets of London praying for his safe delivery in ways instantaneously recognizable for the previous 600 years of European life. And then, mm-hmm. 15, then along comes... June 9th, 1549. Could you explain why that's sort of a, it's a gate, it's a bridge, it's a, it's something. It's a, but something, things are different afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the kind of tipping points in that long, painful journey from Catholic England to Protestant England. Um, I mean, I think we shouldn't overestimate the extent to which this is a watershed moment because 
everything happens at a different pace in different parts of England. So, you know, we're talking about the outbreak of the Southwestern Rebellion in 1549. Um, that's down in Devon and Cornwall and, you know, other bits of the West Country. There's this very strong sense of traditionalism. Um, there's this very strong uh, reaction to the Protestant policies of Edward VI's government. If you look elsewhere in the realm at this time, you get a different kind of perspective. Uh, but we're talking about the promulgation of the Book of Common Prayer, aren't we? Of the of the first of the first new Protestant liturgy. Yeah, and we're talking about um, what that means, and what that means down in the West Country is an affront to everything they hold dear. Um, there's a book very recently published by Mark Stoyle um, called "A Murderous Midsummer," which sort of charts um, in beautiful detail the unfolding of that rebellion down in the southwest. But of course, if you happen to be a Protestant evangelical living in London on June the 9th, 1549, then this was a great moment. You know, this was the final abolition of uh, the mass, which was a, a sort of corrupt survival of a, a popish church. This was the moment when you moved closer to evangelical truth. So it depended on who you are and what your perspective was. I just have to say, in, in 1999, I went to uh, a liturgy in Episcopal Church in the United States where they used the 1549 order. Uh -huh. And uh, it was a, it, very interesting. I, I recall it very vividly because it's in a, in, a, in a modern Episcopalian church, which means it's basically an Anglo-Catholic church. Um, okay. And... Um, I had a medieval studies degree by that time. And so when I'm in there listening to this austere, stripped-down liturgy, which makes the 1662 liturgy uh, and, and subsequent liturgies look like, I don't know, something that uh, something from the Counter-Reformation in comparison, you realize that yeah. the austerity of the 1549 liturgy, where the churches it was now being used in, must have been that must have been revolution truly revolutionary and stark to people for whom this was this was the the the, the shaping one of the shaping frameworks of their lives this was a, a truly different way of of thinking about god and a way of of celebrating god yeah i think it's interesting that you know resistance to protestant advance subsequent to this so often does focus around the mass and the importance of getting the mass yes, back again yes. um, and that you know where people do rise in rebellion one of the things they almost instantly do is start saying mass old style again um yeah i, th I think i mean in due course the book of common prayer liturgy would come to be much beloved and um indeed you know is still used uh, in many places today, but at the time it must have seemed very brash, um, very peculiar to a lot of people. Mm, very peculiar. And Kramer, I mean, they did retreat from it a little bit. I mean, the it, they it, it's not quite the same as it was in its original revolutionary conception. I think it's important to remember that a lot of what the Edwardian Church was doing was quite experimental. And yes, they had to make changes. I mean, ironically, they had to make changes to the 1549 prayer book because in its doctrinal content, it wasn't as radical as many Protestants wanted it to be. So for the 1552 
uh, prayer book actually has moved on considerably in terms of its doctrinal content. Uh, but in many ways, you know, when you when you attend a church service, I'm not sure that doctrine is necessarily the most dominant thing in your mind. So I think that the change to the ritual, the shock of it being in English, um, as the, the Cornish rebels down in the southwest pointed out, you know, they didn't speak any English. So they're <laughs> you know, used to the Latin version and they could make some sense of that. But, um, yeah, I think it must have come as a big shock. Um, was there an English Renaissance? Yes, I think there was. And And what characterizes it? Well, that fascination with the past was already there. But the very specific focus on the classical past, um, I think, works on, on several levels. I mean, on, on one level, this is the English um, intellectual and academic world trying to catch up with the continent. Yeah, I mean, despite the sort of English triumphalism you get in some of the older histories, it's important to accept that England was a bit of a backwater at the start of this period, and it was scrambling to catch up with its more impressive European counterparts. So Renaissance learning, Renaissance art and architecture, you know, these were the badges of sophistication, and they were usually also the adjuncts of power. Um, I mean, as we've seen across Europe, Renaissance art is a very good way of reinforcing um, a sense of status. So, you know, it's something that people want for sort of pragmatic reasons. I think it's just also once you have been bitten by the bug of Renaissance learning, you know, it, it's 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 infectious. Oh, sorry, that's a terrible metaphor, isn't it? But um, <laughs> You know, people, it, it's wonderful to read the, the enthusiasm with which people write about, you know, their first encounter with the, with the great classical authors. And it's wonderful to see them weaving those ideas into their contemporary concerns. I mean, I know, for example, I talk an awful lot about Thomas More's Utopia in the book, because that's such a beautiful example of something, you know, inspired by his extraordinary erudition but applied to the very real and immediate problems of, of poverty, um, of authority, uh, of, sort of social responsibility. Yeah, um, so I, I think there were undoubtedly people who were using Renaissance learning for pragmatic and perhaps selfish ends, but I think there was also a lot of Renaissance idealism, and it colours everything from the literature to the music to the art to the architecture and down to popular culture. So even popular ballads, you know, have their stories of Greece and Rome woven in. Um, so, yeah, I think that counts as an English Renaissance. So let's ask a, a, a popular question uh, for the last 40 years, particularly probably in tutorial essays. Uh, did Tudor women have a Renaissance? Yes, I think they did. Um I mean, it's very important to remember that the wealthier and more important uh, Tudor women could be extraordinarily influential. I mean, this is obviously 
an age where we have two female heads of state. And if you look at the prodigious education, no, I don't mean prodigious, I mean the prodigious um, sort of extent of uh, Elizabeth and Mary's education. Well, Elizabeth, I mean, her, her, she was a tremendous Latinist, as you, as you, I mean, her translations of Tacitus and so on. Mm-hmm. She's, she's, she's really superior. Yeah, but Mary also was a very uh, accomplished humanist scholar. Um, and most, um, you know, certainly by the, the second half of the 16th century, uh, most women of, of noble or, or, or gentry background um, would have a measure of Renaissance education. Um, and it was a very liberating thing. I mean, it was a major element, I think, in Elizabeth's sort of political arsenal. Um, that she could work on that level. That I mean, partly this is in terms of talking to diplomats in their own language, um, but the fact that she could demonstrate that intellectually she was just as able as any male equivalent, I think must have been important. Mm-hmm. Um, how far down does this Renaissance go? I mean, what's mm. uh, we, we know that... Um, you know, the, the <laughs> despite what Shakespeare deniers like to think, grammar schools are much are very superior and very excellent, uh, increasingly excellent throughout Tudor England. Um, they provide a wonderful education to young men in Stratford and Avon and lots mm-hmm. of other places uh, in in, um, in in England. Um, what what's the effect on 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 the education of of lower status women? Well, women are less likely to be educated in a school setting. They're more likely to be educated in the home. Um, But the importance of literary culture, um, you know, can can be seen not perhaps all the way down the social scale, but certainly, you know, by the mid-century, it's become quite common for women of middling status to own books, to read books, to discuss books, um, to write letters to one another um, or to their families, which will make um, reference to this. And if you think, I mean, you mentioned Shakespeare, if you think of the playgoing um, culture of Elizabethan London, it's clear that that was not just something for the elite. I mean, obviously Shakespeare's plays and, and those of other playwrights are performed at court, but they're also there in the commercial theatres. And it's clear that a wide range of the population went to attend those um, plays, which often have a very emphatic kind of Renaissance theme. Um, if you think of all the all the Roman plays from, from the late 16th century, uh, now, they wouldn't have written those plays if they didn't know that those themes, those stories, those characters had a cultural resonance for a wide section of society. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like many things in this era, it's top heavy. Uh, it's something that is more easily accessible if you happen to have wealth and status. But it's not by any means closed off to the lower levels of society. We're going to have to start uh, winding this up and uh, approaching the end of the, the hour. But I wanted to ask you, you refer to both the reigns of Edward VI and 
the reign of Larry I as being pivotal. They follow one after the other, <laughs> and they're um, they're often overlooked. They're short, but they're full of incident. What makes them both pivotal? And I guess this, if both are pivotal, considering they're pivoting in opposite directions, this is yeah. part of the the frenzy and the tumult that characterizes Tudor England. Yeah, I think the fact that the the country moves so uh, rapidly in one direction and then so rapidly in another, you know, this helps delineate the boundaries of religious conflict thereafter. Um, and Edward VI reign becomes the kind of touchstone for later Protestants. It, it's often seen as the kind of high watermark of Protestant Reformation. And Edward VI is cast as the godly imp, the uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, the this, this sort of young Josiah, this, this Protestant boy king. Um, I mean, I think the truth was a lot more uncomfortable than that and a lot more contested. And I think his reign was by no means smooth sailing, but, you know, it did establish a line in the sand of, you know, this is how far Protestant Reformation could go in England. Equally, Mary's reign um, really established the Catholic strength, the, the strength of the kind of recusant Catholic tradition after her death. Um, and, you know, I would make a strong case for Mary overseeing a kind of Catholic Reformation uh, in her brief reign, um, putting a lot of energy and investment into scholarship, into the restoration of popular worship, um, into the reform of the church, as well as the, the restoration of it. So I think after those two reigns, had in such sort of swift succession uh, pushed the boundaries of the possible in, in terms of religious change, religious innovation. I think the religious landscape never looked the same again. And it makes sense then after these two rapid pivots that Elizabeth would make the claim that she was always the same. Um, <laughs> That, that as she seeks to have a, a decades-long exercise of societal stability, of, you know, of, of, of trying to split the difference, trying to be somehow balanced between these two, these two extremes? Um, what's... That's very much the impression she tries to give. That is, however, very much papering over the cracks. I mean, Elizabeth's reign is far from stable. And you know, the longevity of her reign gives that illusion, I suppose, that she is in control of the situation. But she really, really isn't. Um, I mean, the first 10, 15 years of her reign, you've effectively got a Protestant queen and a Protestant elite trying to establish control over a largely Catholic country. And that's never going to be easy. She has to tread extremely carefully. And to her credit, she does. I mean, she has you know, a great many political skills and she's a consummate actor and she plays the part very, very well. Um, but there is always the risk of rebellion. There's always the risk of intervention from Catholic powers abroad. All of these things do at points come you know, come to, to fruition. Um, yeah, I, I would say that Elizabeth 
whatever she might say about herself as the embodiment of balance and stability and all the rest of it, I think she's walking on eggshells pretty much the whole time. Mm-hmm. Which, kind of like her grandfather. I, it's really kind of ex- interesting that, that it's the same sort of idea. I mean, the, the tutors, the, the eggshells are no less, uh, are no thicker by 1590 than they were in, in 1500. Uh, I think that's right. Different set of eggshells, obviously. Different set of eggs, yes. Yeah, I mean, Henry VII at least had his family. In fact, more than that, Henry VII's family are immensely important to his success. His children, um, the fact that the succession was guaranteed, the fact that he uses his daughters to make intelligent um, marriages uh, to sort of reinforce his his diplomatic strengths. yeah, I mean Elizabeth was on her own. Yeah, it's really shocking in a way. It, it, it compare. Yeah, it's really interesting. We we celebrate her as the sort of liberated uh, female monarch, and yet at the same time, you know, as I said in my notes, I, I continually think of how, in a way, irresponsible she was, um, in, in that she had no family to sort of, she had nobody to rest upon. Um, it's, it's, a, I guess it's a, a, it was not a problem that she could solve and she's a lot smarter than me uh, <laughs> about such things, but, um, it's still, it's, it's really, it's, we don't think of it as a problem. It's a huge problem for any monarch to be just completely reliant upon their own will and abilities mm. in, that, in that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering, it's perhaps a little bit unfair to call her irresponsible. I mean, it's more that she's in a situation where there's, there's no easy way out in that marriage would have been highly problematic and possibly fatal to her authority. Um, it, childbirth might very well have proved fatal. Yep. As, you know, the, as we can see from the rest of her family, there's no guarantee that just because you marry, you manage to produce an heir. And of course, by the end of the reign, it's almost too late to declare an heir. Because she hasn't got a child of her own, um, in the very, very kind of uh, conflicted world of late 16th century Europe, no matter who she had named, it would have caused trouble. Mm -hmm. So possibly, I mean, it was Elizabeth's nature to take refuge in silence. And possibly that was the best that she could do. Let's let's finish with this. You um, you write in Tudor England, power was ritually enacted, shame mm. was a matter for public show, political allegiance and religious devotion alike were acted out for all to see. Um, so, in what ways? I, I was concluding in thinking in, in what ways. I mean, our metaphor of theater occurs very naturally to us when it comes to Tudor England, uh, to get back to Shakespeare. But uh, it, it was a theater state. But was it also a theater society? Yes. Yeah. This a, yeah. I think very much so. I mean, obviously, we're, we're looking at a society which has very um, constrained literacy. Um, and so is going to na- necessarily be more dependent on other forms of communication. Um, and it's a, it's a society in which ritual is observed in both religious and political um, uh, 
and communal uh, um, senses. So you are defined by the livery that you wear, by the um, staff of office or the chain of office that you carry, um, and a great many of the kind of processes are performative. So justice and punishment is the most obvious example, perhaps, um, in the you know all Tudor executions, um, or indeed other more minor forms of punishment, are an acting out of moral principle. Branding. Um, yeah, having a, or, having a, t- a tongue board, a hole board in your tongue for blasphemy. Yeah, well, that's yeah. A, that's, a, that's a public thing. Yeah, or, or even I mean, you know, the fascinating phenomenon of scaffold speeches where people about to die affirm their faith in the authority that is executing them and the laws that have judged them and the moral culpability that they bear. And you know this was absolutely standard that this should this should be uh, broadcast just at the moment of of death. So you know even those who are about to die are, are playing their part in this piece of theatre. Um, processions too are another brilliant example. You know if you if you have power, you deploy it as you process. Whether you're proce- whether you're the king processing to the chapel royal, whether you are the assize judges processing into town um, to, to pass judgment at the assize courts, um, whether you are some kind of religious community or the parish, you know, marking uh, a ritual point in the church year. So performance was something that, you know, it wasn't just, I mean, we still, ha- we still have politicians who act apart today, although not necessarily very well, um, but I think in the 16th century, everybody had a part to play um, in that in the political process. But you know, it just just in 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 the drama of life itself. My guest today has been Lucy Wooding. She is author of Tudor England: A History. Lucy Wooding, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.